0: Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Death, the inevitable result of living. Most likely, you've pondered death, and although science can usually explain one's demise, sometimes people pass without any reasonable explanation. Rainbot joins me for this special episode of Twisted Tens. (laughs)
1: On December 1, 1948, an unsettling discovery was made on Adelaide's Somerton Beach in Australia, which continues to baffle scientists to this day. Around 6 a.m., two horseback riders noticed a man's body lying completely motionless in the sand. His head was leaned against the retaining wall, so at first he appeared as though he was sleeping, but upon further examination, they realized that he was dead. In the man's pocket was a bus ticket that proved he had been on the beach since the preceding afternoon. Autopsy results later show that he was in his 40s, had a healthy heart, and was physically in shape. There were no signs of violence or poison, but the man's spleen was three times its normal size, and his organs were excessively filled with blood. Heart failure was the presumed cause of death, but they could never determine what led up to it. Adding to the mystery, authorities found a torn piece of paper in the man's pocket with the words "tamam shud" printed on it, meaning "ended" or "finished" in Persian. The words eventually were linked to the last page of the Rubaiyat, an anthology of poems by the 11th-century Persian poet Omar Khayyam. The following year, someone gave the authorities the book from which the man's paper had been torn. He stated that the book was thrown into his vehicle on the same day that the unidentified body was found. In the very back of the book were five rows of letters, assumed to be a hidden code. Many have attempted to unscramble the letters. However, they have yet to be accurately deciphered. And until then, the man's identity and cause of death remains unknown.
0: Edgar Allan Poe is one of the most revered writers of the 19th century. His gothic and dark works resonate with millions across the world and have also inspired prominent authors such as H.P. Lovecraft and Agatha Christie. Perhaps it is fitting that Poe's death was strikingly similar to the nature of his writings. On September 27, 1849, Poe took a boat from Richmond, Virginia, and arrived in Baltimore, Maryland on September 28th. He had $1,500, some of which was in advance for writing an article, and the rest was subscription money for his magazine. Even for Poe, this was a handsome amount of cash. The following days were some of the most unclear of Poe's life. On the 3rd of October, near Ryan's tavern, he was found aimlessly wandering the streets of Baltimore in a state of utter delirium. His clothing did not seem to fit him and was inside out. An acquaintance named Dr. Snodgrass soon came to visit Poe and sent him away to Washington College Hospital. Poe was taken to a comfortable room where he continually drifted in and out of consciousness, his physician, Dr. John Joseph Morin, questioned him about how he came to be in his incoherent state. Poe's only response was Reynolds. Many have tried to identify who Reynolds could have been, but their attempts have been in vain. On October 7, 1849, between 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., Edgar Allan Poe passed away. The cause of his death is still debated. Some believe he died from excessive drinking, others claim he suffered from a disease. Regardless, nobody truly knows what caused Poe's untimely demise, but perhaps one day the truth will be uncovered.
1: In 1943, the Second World War had already commenced, but far away from the belligerent violence that ravaged Europe, there emerged a silent horror that descended upon the county of Worcestershire, England. On April 18th, four local teenage boys, Fred Payne, Thomas Willets, Robert Hart, and Bob Farmer, trespassed on private property in an area known as Hagley Woods, hunting for rabbits, birds, and other small animals. They came across a decaying elm tree, allegedly named Witch Elm or Witch Elm by locals. Bob Farmer climbed the tree in the hopes of finding birds' nests, but when he peered down into the hollowed trunk, he saw an emaciated corpse, grimacing with gnarled teeth and empty eyes. Dismayed, the boys ran off and decided to keep it a secret since they had been trespassing. The youngest boy, Thomas, later told his father who called the police. The preceding morning, authorities found traces of shredded clothing and the body's severed hand buried near the tree. The autopsy results revealed the body belonged to a 35-year-old woman who had given birth once during her lifetime and had perished 18 months prior. In 1941, an executive of an industrial company near Hagley Woods reported hearing the screaming of a woman. The police investigated but did not find the source of the shrieks, yet were still convinced it was linked to the unidentified woman. Authorities hoped that she would one day be identified, but the case grew cold. As time went on, graffiti began appearing in the vicinity, with phrases such as Who put Lubella down the witch elm? Or "Hagleywood Bella. People wondered if the messages were written by pranksters, or someone who knew about the unnamed woman's murder. There are many theories about Bella's death. Professor Margaret Murray, an anthropologist, folklorist, and Egyptologist, remarked that the severed hand was possibly connected to black magic. Others believe the woman was a German spy, or perhaps a gypsy who was murdered. Regardless, Bella's grim fate remains a mystery.
0: Zygmunt Adamski was a coal miner who worked at the Lofthouse Colliery in West Yorkshire, England. On the 6th of June 1980, Zygmunt left his house to buy groceries, but several hours later still hadn't returned home. After failing to attend a family wedding, his relatives became worried. On June 11th, Zygmunt's lifeless body was discovered lying in a pile of coal. Detectives noted there were no footprints, no signs of a struggle or coal dust found around or on Zygmunt's body. He was well nourished and didn't meet any violence, but his face looked like he experienced something torturous before he died. Even more inexplicable were burn marks all over his head, neck, and back with hints of a peculiar ointment. An autopsy was later revealed that he perished From heart failure. However, the strange ointment on his burn marks was never identified. Many speculate that Zygmunt was abducted by extraterrestrials and was disposed of in the coal yards, but it is unlikely we will ever know exactly what happened. To Zygmunt Adamski.
1: On October 8, 2009, 44-year-old Bobby Jameson, his wife, 40-year-old Sherilyn Jameson, and their six-year-old daughter Madison went to complete their purchase of a 40-acre plot of land near Red Oak, Oklahoma. Unfortunately, the Jameson family never got to enjoy their new land. Friends and family who didn't hear from them for over eight days grew worried when hunters on dirt bikes discovered the Jameson's abandoned truck parked on the side of the road. The doors were locked, but inside, police found wallets, IDs, cell phones, a GPS, $32,000 in cash, and the family dog almost dead from starvation and neglect. The Latimer County Sheriff ordered a wide-ranging manhunt, and for the next eight months, police, volunteers, dogs, and drones meticulously searched the area to no avail. Then, four years later, deer hunters found the skeletal remains of the Jameson family all laying face down, side by side, 2.7 miles from where their truck was found. Unfortunately, the cause of their deaths can't be determined since their bodies had almost completely decomposed. What perplexed authorities was the fact that they hadn't found the bodies during their meticulous search. There are many theories concerning the Jameson's fate. Some say their outing was actually a drug deal gone wrong, while others claim the family accidentally witnessed illegal activity and were killed by the perpetrators. More curious conjectures include sadistic cults following several reports of cult activity in the area and possibly elements of the supernatural. Since the discovery of the Jameson's bodies, no further evidence has been collected. The case, unfortunately, has gone cold, and to this day, the culprit or culprits are still at large.
0: In December of 2010, 76-year-old Michael Faraday was found dead in his home. He had been burned alive, but investigators could not find what caused the fire. The rest of the house was intact, and though a fire had been burning in the small fireplace in the living room, it did not cause Michael's death. Moreover, no other traces of flammable substances were found that could have contributed to the random combustion. Forensic experts were completely bewildered, as even the possibility of foul play was dismissed for a lack of evidence. The only sensible conclusion was spontaneous human combustion. Despite the cases throughout history, scientists argue over whether it is actually plausible, since the human body is mostly composed of water. Spontaneous combustion is thought to occur when an object or person ignites from a chemical reaction within. Sometimes, victims may receive moderate burns on their body, even if they were never physically touched by a source of external heat. Luckily, however, spontaneous human combustion does seem to be quite a rarity.
1: August 20th, 1966. On Vintam Hill, a suburb of Rio de Janeiro, a young man named Jorge de Costa was flying a kite when he stumbled across the dead bodies of two men. When authorities arrived a day later, they were only left with questions. The bodies belonged to two local electricians, Manuel Pereira de Cruz and Miguel Jose Viana. Both men wore identical suits and raincoats, and each had a lead mask covering their eyes, presumably to protect them from radiation. But authorities then wondered why the masks were not covering their entire faces. Investigators also found a bottle of water, a packet holding two towels, and a notebook which contained enigmatic messages. One read, 1630, be at the agreed place. 1830, swallow capsules, after effect, protect metals, wait for mask sign. The message still didn't explain the men's purpose. There were no signs of a struggle or foul play, and the only reasonable explanation was that they had poisoned themselves with the mentioned capsules. Unfortunately, toxicology tests were never performed on their corpses an apparent friend of Manuel and Miguel told authorities that the two men were paranormal enthusiasts, fascinated by spirituality and extraterrestrial entities, and that they believe that Vintam Hill was a hotspot for UFO activity. Many speculate that they were attempting to make contact with extraterrestrial life or even communicate with spirits. But to this day, the death of Manuel and Miguel remains a mystery
0: stay with us we'll be right back bloody fm presents hometown ghost stories a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles bridges to asylums wandering spirits to demons over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. In 1963, near the middle-class suburb of Chatswood in Sydney, Australia, two young boys searched for golf balls along the Lane Cove River, only to find one of the greatest unsolved death cases in all of Australia's history. A man unclothed from the waist down was wearing a suit, lying face down next to the edge of the river. The man had purple spots on his face. His right nostril was bleeding and his wallet identified him as Dr. Gilbert Boggle. Then, just 20 yards away, the body of a woman named Mrs. Margaret Chandler was found underneath several sheets of cardboard. Neither victim showed signs of trauma, however the strong odor of vomit and feces lingered near both corpses, and investigators suspected the pair were poisoned. However, the results of the toxicology tests only concluded that they both died from acute circulatory failure. Both Gilbert and Margaret attended a New Year's Eve party the night of their death. The two had an affair, but Margaret had an open marriage, and Dr. Gilbert's wife was occupied watching her children the evening of the party, so neither spouse was a suspect. The only other possibility was that Gilbert's ex-lover's husband, had killed them. Dr. Gilbert had once been romantically involved with a Mrs. Fowler, a librarian where Gilbert worked. Mrs. Fowler's husband, a chemical engineer, possibly used secret chemicals to murder Gilbert. Other speculations include CIA or KGB involvement, but perhaps the most convincing theory is the simplest. Many believe Dr. Gilbert and Margaret fell victim to the pollution from the Lane Cove River. If the two went to the river to have an intimate evening together, dumped sewage and industrial chemicals could have soaked into the ground and caused deadly gases to rise, killing them before they even knew what was going on. However, nobody truly knows what happened to Dr. Gilbert Bogle and Mrs. Margaret Chandler. Whether it was murder or they accidentally inhaled toxic gas their death will undoubtedly remain unexplained.
1: Christopher Case was just 35 years old when he was found dead in his bathtub fully dressed. Christopher had died of heart failure despite living an exceedingly healthy lifestyle. He never took drugs, smoked, and was in good physical shape with no history of heart disease in his family. Nonetheless, there were some remarkably strange details regarding his life before he passed away. Christopher was the artist manager at a music company in Seattle, Washington, and had a fascination with ancient music. He took a business trip to San Francisco to meet a young woman who was a self-proclaimed witch and scholar in ancient Egyptian music. During their meeting, the woman made a pass at Christopher, who politely turned down her romantic offer. However, Christopher soon became paranoid that she had hexed him and feared that he had little time left to live. Before his death, he confided in friends that he had woken up to cuts on his fingers and bruises all over his body. It was on April 18th of 1991 that Christopher's body was discovered. Whether it was his incessant fear that had caused his heart failure or a curse cast by a witch, we may never actually know the truth.
0: 33-year-old Terry Cottle, the husband of Cheryl Cottle, took his own life with a shotgun. His heart was donated to Sonny Graham, who only had six months to live due to congestive heart failure. In 1997, Sonny wrote to his donor's family, thanking them for the transplant that gave him a new life. He eventually met Cheryl, and they almost immediately fell in love. After marrying, Sonny and Cheryl moved to Vidalia, Georgia, after Sonny retired from his job as a communications manager at Hilton Head. The couple was extremely happy, but in 2008, unforeseen tragedy struck. Sonny went into the shed in his backyard, took a shotgun, placed the barrel up to his throat, and pulled the trigger, killing himself exactly as his heart donor had done before. Cheryl, widowed for a second time, was devastated. Some scientists believe the suicide was an instance of cellular memory, a phenomenon that occurs in a human subject after they receive surgical transplants. From what Sonny's relatives and family could observe, he did not seem to be struggling with depression whatsoever. Coincidence or not, the death of Sonny Graham is tragic, eerie, and not fully explained. Thank you for watching. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. And I'll see you next time. There's no question about it. Someone out there wants you dead. Either it's for something you know or something you did, or it's entirely indiscriminate. There are people out there who only exist to kill, and some of them, either by technique or by chance, will never be caught, and they will leave those who surround your corpse without a clue of where to begin. It's widely recognized that the survival of one government depends heavily on the information it has on other governments. Gareth Williams was a codebreaker for MI6, otherwise known as the Secret Intelligence Service in the United Kingdom. He was an avid cyclist and well known for being a very private individual, which could have been expected from someone in a position such as his. But among the stress you'd expect from thwarting terrorist attacks, Gareth experienced a disdain for the rat race his position required running in. He was tired of jumping through hoops and complained of friction at work. This lack of satisfaction led him to request a transfer to another department. This is to believe to have upset his superiors. So Gareth made preparations for his new job. A new job he would never be able to take. He suddenly stopped showing up for work. Though he was displeased with his work conditions, skipping out on the job wasn't in Gareth's nature. About a week passed before his superiors finally reported him missing. In August of 2010, authorities entered the flat Gareth had been living in and searched for him. But he was nowhere to be found. At first. Authorities discovered a large North Face duffel bag resting in the bathroom tub. The outside was locked with a padlock which left everyone just dying to know if what was secured inside this bag held a clue to Gareth's whereabouts. It held more than that. When the padlock was removed, Gareth himself was found dead inside just about a week shy of his transfer date. Immediately foul play was suspected and an investigation into Gareth's death was launched. But considering it took his superiors so long to report him missing, the cause of death wasn't so simple to determine anymore. Though he had no wounds to his body and there were no signs of him having experienced a struggle in any way, his death was still found highly suspicious. Over 300 attempts were made where a man of Gareth's size tried zipping himself into a similar bag. All were unsuccessful, but it was determined that, in theory, it might be possible to do it. However, not without getting his DNA all over the lock in the bathtub, which there was none. None on the lock, none on the bathtub, none on the zipper. In fact, there was barely any DNA to gather in all of the flat itself. It had seemed that someone had scrubbed the flat almost impeccably clean. While police were initially very adamant about foul play, they suddenly, for an unknown reason, changed their mind and released a statement claiming that Gareth more than likely zipped himself in the bag and died. While they may consider the case closed, many others, understandably, do not. Prostitution, it's one of the oldest professions in the world. However, it's one of the most dangerous as well. But for one prostitute in Stockholm, Sweden, no one could have expected the fate that awaited her. Lily Lindstrom was 32 years old in 1932. She had been married to a man before the two filed for divorce and she took to a life of prostitution. She lived in a small apartment and often would have her clients meet her there for sex. Aside from the clientele, Lily also had friends come over to visit, in particular other prostitutes that lived in the same building. One such friend, named Minnie, was visiting with Lily on May Day, and the two were preparing to take part in the festivities that evening. Suddenly, Lily's phone rang. Lily answered her phone, and a man spoke on the other line, asking for her by name. Minnie listened in as the man requested Lily's services. She figured it wouldn't hurt to get some work done before the celebration, so she invited him to her place, and Minnie willingly left Lily to herself. Minnie saw Lily again later in the day when Lily came to her door looking for condoms. That was the last time that Minnie would see her friend. When Lily didn't answer her door later in the night, Minnie just assumed she and her client went to enjoy the celebration. It was three days before everyone began suspecting something was wrong and police got involved. Police forced their way into Lily's apartment and discovered the horror that awaited them. Lily was lying dead, face down on her bed with her clothes folded neatly on a chair nearby. Her body, however, appeared to be a bit thinner than normal. Near her body was a soup ladle with blood residue inside. Under closer inspection, it was revealed that Lily's body had been drained of all of its blood, and whoever had done it had drank it all using the soup ladle. Authorities swept the entire apartment, but never found any sufficient evidence. The incident was known as the vampire murder case, and the vampire himself seemed to disappear without a trace. Despite their best efforts, police were never able to catch the one that they called the Atlas Vampire. With Karen Silkwood's job, there came a lot of risk. Karen worked at a nuclear fuel plant in 1972, where she was part of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, She took part in a strike against the company and once the strike was resolved, was appointed to the union's bargaining committee and was the first woman in the history of the company to hold that position. She was tasked with monitoring health and safety around the plant and came across numerous violations that left the workers at great risk for contamination. Contamination from plutonium. Workers often performed routine self-checks. It was a part of their job to be sure that they weren't contaminated. Unfortunately, Karen discovered that the company, which had relaxed on regulations in order to speed up production, had caused her and others to become contaminated. In early November of 1974, Karen discovered her body contained almost 400 times the legal limit of plutonium contamination. Though the plant had her decontaminated, it wasn't of much use. Health physicists surveyed her apartment and found startling levels of contamination in numerous areas of her home, even on food in her refrigerator. Her levels were so dangerous, that even the air she expelled from her lungs showed levels of heavy contamination. Believing that the company was putting her and many others at great risk in exchange for financial gain, Karen contacted a New York Times journalist. Karen assembled a great deal of documentation, including files from the company. She wanted to go public to expose her employers. She hopped into her car to meet with the journalist, but she would never make it to their meeting. Karen's car suddenly went off the road and crashed so severely that it claimed Karen's life. When authorities inspected her vehicle, they found sedatives inside. Her blood level came back as containing twice the recommended dosage for inducing drowsiness, which would have rendered her not only unable to drive, but barely able to even walk to her car. How she managed to get behind the wheel of her car under the influence of such heavy sedatives is unknown, but there were other suspicious factors that arose from the tragedy. There were skid marks from Karen's car, suggesting that she tried to force her car back onto the road, something she wouldn't have been able to do if she were under the influence of the sedatives. Not only this, but Karen's car had damage to the back, even though her accident was a front-end collision. Even deeper investigation showed paint chips in the dents on the back of her vehicle, paint chips that didn't match her car's color. All the signs, that another car must have struck her. Perhaps the most unfortunate thing, aside from Karen's death, was the fact that the documentation and all of the evidence was gone from Karen's car, and it was never found. Evil is in no short supply in our world, and sometimes even the most benevolent of people can't keep it from finding you and taking you. But wait, it's not over yet. My good friend Matthew Santoro has provided you with the second half of this collaboration with a video called The Ten Most Bizarre Deaths of
2: all time. Number one is Wii for Wii. In 2007, the Nintendo Wii was one of the hottest products around and it was in short supply. Both gamers and parents of gamers were willing to do pretty much anything to get one. To capitalize on this, a California radio station called KDND 107.9 held a contest called Hold Your Wii for Wii. Contestants were required to drink about 7.5 liters of water and whoever held it the longest won. One of the 20 contestants was a 28-year-old mother named Jennifer Strange. After coming in second, she didn't feel so well, so she immediately went home, only to later be found dead of water intoxication. Her family ended up suing the radio station and won $16.5 million for wrongful death. I'd just like to point out that the woman came in second. She didn't even win the Wii. I'm not saying she's dumb, but you know, someone may have plopped a steamer in her gene pool. Number two is Death by Chocolate. Vincent Smith II was a 29-year-old factory worker at Cocoa Services in Camden, New Jersey. He seemed to have the perfect job. He got to work with confectionery all day and made a good living doing it. That was until one day in 2009 when he was dumping cocoa into a giant vat of chocolate and he was suddenly struck in the head by a mixing blade. The blow didn't kill him, but it did make him fall unconscious, causing him to fall over the side of the 2.4 meter deep tank of boiling hot chocolate. He had been in the vat for a full 10 minutes before he was pulled out and by that time, was too late, he had drowned on a lot of melted chocolate. This is really terrible and a perfect example of why you should always practice workplace safety. Also, oompa loompa doompa dee, dee that's one tasty death if you wanna ask me. I'm sorry, I'm going to hell. Number three is through the looking glass. Gary Hoy was a 38-year-old lawyer from Toronto, Canada who was working at the Toronto Dominion Centre. He was a highly respected philanthropic member of Toronto's Asian community and was educated as an engineer before becoming a lawyer, so he was a smart dude or so people thought. One day, while working with a bunch of prospective apprentices in the office, he decided that he wanted to prove to them that the glass in the Dominion Center was unbreakable. Having tried this previously, where he harmlessly bounced off the glass, he again threw himself against it, where, like he predicted, the glass did not break. No, instead, the frame gave way, sending him in the entire pane of glass, plummeting 24 floors down to the concrete below. This bizarre death was recreated by Mythbusters and actually got Hoy recognized at the 1996 Darwin Awards. Well, this proves once again that you should never trust Windows because one way or another, It's gonna crash. Number four is all choked up. Angela Isadora Duncan was an American dancer born in 1877. Originally from California, she lived in Western Europe most of her life and was an accomplished dancer that performed to acclaim throughout Europe after being exiled from the United States for her pro-Soviet stance. She had a great fondness for flowing scarves that she regularly wore as a part of her wardrobe. Unfortunately, it was that very fondness that contributed to her death. One night in 1927, she was a passenger in a Bugatti while driving around in France when suddenly the car was in an accident. Her silk scarf, which was draped around her neck, became entangled in the open-spoked wheel, hurling her from the car like a human slingshot, breaking her neck. Well, she didn't exactly wake up in a new Bugatti, but You know, she did. Number five is a serious handicap. In the summer of 1994, a 16-year-old named Jeremy Breno was playing a round of golf with some friends at the Kingsboro Golf Club in Gloversville, New York. The day was going good until Jeremy and his friends reached the sixth hole where Jeremy, in a fit of frustration, smashed his golf club off of a bench. Frustration in golf is pretty common, as is smashing the occasional club. However, this time, in a freak accident, the shaft broke, bouncing back and piercing Jeremy's heart leading to his death shortly after. Yeah, so remember this story next time you're about to go all Happy Gilmore after losing a shot. You might die. Number six is Holy Cow. In 2013, a 45-year-old man named Joao Maria de Souza was asleep in his bed with his wife in Caratinga, Brazil. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, a 1,400 kilogram cow fell through the roof of his house onto his bed leading to injuries that would kill him just a few hours later. The cow had escaped from a local farm and somehow made it onto the roof of D'Souza's home. The roof was unable to support the massive cow which collapsed, dropping the cow 2.5 meters onto D'Souza's leg, completely missing his wife, leaving her unharmed along with the cow. This was of course back when Milk's marketing for Got Milk was a far more aggressive campaign. Number seven is the roast of the century. St. Lawrence was born in Spain in 225 AD. In 257 AD, Pope Sixtus II ordained St. Lawrence as a deacon and promptly demanded that he hand over all of his wealth to the church. However, St. Lawrence believed that all of his wealth should go directly to those in need and began promptly handing it all out to the poor. This infuriated the pope who had a great gridiron prepared with hot coals underneath and placed St. Lawrence above it and grilled him alive. Surprisingly, as he was slowly roasted to death, he reportedly joked with his tormentors saying, turn me over, I'm done on this side. Today, he's the patron saint of cooks and firefighters, which is extremely morbid and whoever decided that has a really sick sense of humor. Get your head checked. Number eight is backfire. Clement Valendingham was a 50-year-old lawyer from Ohio who practiced law for many years. On one such case, he was defending a client who was charged with murdering a man in a barroom brawl. In an attempt to prove his client's innocence, he demonstrated how the victim might have shot himself. Selecting a pistol that he believed to be unloaded, he put it in his pocket and reenacted the events as they might have happened. However, the pistol was in fact loaded, and upon snagging the gun on his own clothing, unintentionally fired it into his own stomach. His client was cleared of the crime, however, Valandingham died shortly after from his wounds. Now that, That's dedication to your work. Number nine is Revenge of the Snake. In 2014, a Chinese chef named Pen Fan was preparing a snake soup for guests at a restaurant that he was working at. The soup is a delicacy and requires the chopped up meat of an Indo Chinese spitting cobra. After killing the snake by severing its head, he continued to prepare the soup. However, 20 minutes later, as he was throwing out the carcass, the snake's severed head bit him, injecting him with a neurotoxic venom, killing him shortly after. What he didn't know is that some snakes have the capability to bite and inject venom even after their head has been severed, mostly as a reflex action. Unfortunately, he did not have access to antivenom in time, causing a quick death. Interestingly, cobras are a delicacy in China and are considered good for your health assuming that the severed head of one doesn't kill you first. But if you can get past that, yum! Number 10 is a killer meal. Adolf Frederick was the king of Sweden until his death in February of 1771. He was a weak monarch and little more than a figurehead, but was known for eating lavish meals. On one such occasion, he consumed a meal of lobster, caviar, sauerkraut, smoked herring, and champagne, and topped it all off with 14 servings of his favorite dessert. The excessive meal caused severe digestion problems killing him shortly after to this day he's still known as the king who ate himself to death still he's better off with that fate because having been alive to pass that food baby the next day would have been quite the battle and that's it for this time guys that's all for now remember you may
0: not believe it but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange
3: thank you for listening be sure to follow the seriously strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you watch the shadows and stay alive out there Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange Podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange Podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says Support the Show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute... It's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.